Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're going to turn our attention towards the role of religious dynamics in post-conflict zones, especially when considering delivering humanitarian aid and sustainable development to the affected area. Now, our world is getting more polarized than ever before, and none more so than on the topic of religion. Now, when it comes to conflict, many like to argue that religion is the key cause for it. And while others are considering the fact that we need to take in consideration that the lack of it can actually be more harmful than anything before. So how important is it to take in consideration religion when delivering aid or sustainable development to post-conflict Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, or the like? Now, Joining us to discuss the matter is Professor Mark Juergensmeyer, who is an American scholar in sociology, global studies, and religious studies, as well as a distinguished professor of sociology and global studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is regarded as an expert on religious violence, conflict resolution, and politics, and has published 28 books I have here, and over 300 articles. So as you see, we have the perfect person to discuss this topic. So Professor Jürgens Meyer, welcome to the Global Podcast. My pleasure. Of course, we're, we're talking at a time where, uh, as we were just mentioning uh, before hopping onto the, onto the episode, the fact that we've had the, the attacks in Sri Lanka on the, on the churches over the Easter weekend. You know, there is a constant notion for many saying that the fact that religious is this dividing factor, etc., etc., and religious causes conflict and, and, and so on and so forth. But before we dive into the notion of religious dynamics you know, of, of, for sustainable development, as we want to talk about for this podcast, I really want to go into the nitty gritty of the actual argument of religion causing conflict. You know, we're hearing people say that it causes it. We hear others that say it's not it's not religion that it's people. Others saying that well, it's self interest masked in religion and 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 so on and so forth. You know, I have my own thoughts, but I'll I'll keep that separate. But I just want to ask, you know, what is the role of religion in conflict, and and can that actually easily be defined? Can it really be put in a box, or is it quite nuanced? Well, every case is different, but in general, um, the idea that people cause conflicts and and they uh, often use religion in order to justify what they're doing is probably closer to the truth than the idea that religion is a kind of – as if it was an essentialized existence that could all by itself do something uh, is really unlikely. I mean, religion is a product of human culture and and it it can be a huge motivating factor when this – 
ideologies related to religion are shared and, and are promulgated by people, but you, it's always within a social or political context. I mean, take ISIS, for example. I just came back from Iraq. And there, the Sunni Arabs have been felt marginalized by the Shiite governments in both Damascus and in Baghdad. So it's understandable that they would look for any kind of leadership that would give them uh, some you know, role in public life that would give them dignity, that would give them jobs. Uh, and so they'll accept uh, this kind of wacky apocalyptic imagery from ISIS, uh, not because that's the first thing that comes to their mind, but because it gives them, it empowers them in some way. And often that's the case, that a religious community may feel marginalized for some reason or uh, may feel uh, oppressed or exploited, and, and then it, it sees an advantage in using a religious ideologies or no so so there we go with that for exact role that it can provide and, and i appreciate the fact that you use it with regards to isis and, and iraq because there's no question in doubt that the religion plays such a, a key role in societies yet that role can be used you know as you've mentioned for for one's own gain and it's of course of, of people and i think of my own my own faith base, which is quite diverse, but I guess if you put a label on it, I'm Roman Catholic, I have my own beliefs, but I, there's some Catholics, the way they operate in a sense where I say, well, well, hold up a second, I'm not too sure about this, and it just changes, you know, as one circulates the globe. So, understanding that role that it has, and I also find it bizarre that, uh, you know, you have a lot of Western diplomats and humanitarians who say that well we shouldn't consider religion at all when it comes to 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 really assessing a conflict that we should be looking at the other dynamics and so on. Uh, you know, how, how much are we getting that wrong when we take that consideration? Well, I think we should look at all the dynamics. There's no question you should look at the social, economic, and political factors, <clears throat> but you should also look at the way in which religion plays a role, both in giving a sense of identity, because often people will within a, a multicultural environment, they will uh, identify maybe primarily by their religious group. In, in Iraq, for example, politics now has been created along sectarian religious lines. Sunni and Shia people got along pretty well in Iraq before the downfall of Saddam, and suddenly politics opened up, and there was a scramble for power, and people identified along lines that were kind of most obviously easy to mobilize around, and that turned out to be religion. So it's not like Sunnis and Shia have been at each other's throats forever and ever and ever, uh, but in this particular context, it becomes a connection, uh, an identity connection. So that's one way in which religion could play a role. Another is ideology uh, in providing a kind of imagined war, imagined uh, conflict uh, that then identifies who the enemy is for people who feel kind of, you know, oppressed or feel out of sorts and they don't know quite why, to be able to think of the world as seized in an imaginary war, a hidden battle between right and wrong and truth and, and untruth and religion and irreligion in which their side can be victorious if it only maintains the struggle. I mean, this is another thing that ISIS provided. It provided uh, an, an imagined scenario of conflict, a great global apocalyptic conflict in which the caliphate of uh, Islam would finally emerge victorious. You have to take that seriously. 
you have to understand that people can be motivated by this. I, I've been talking with some former ISIS fighters in prison in Iraq in the last couple of weeks when I was over in, in Iraq. Mm. And I was amazed the degree to which they still believe that. They are still committed to this image of apocalyptic war. And it, for them, it's just as lively, it's just as true, it's just as palpable as anything that we see in our existence. So if you don't take that seriously, uh, then you don't understand the motivations, at least of some of the fighters, not all of them, because some people support ISIS just for sectarian reasons, because they think this is going to help the Sunni Arabs politically. Uh, but others are true believers. They bought into that apocalyptic uh, imagination, and you have to take that seriously. Taking that seriously, and, and, and I'm happy you've mentioned that example, particularly of the, of the former ISIS fighters, because let's say in the foot of an NGO or a humanitarian organization, the United Nations, or even a business that has a social mission that is looking to provide a service post-conflict. Uh, you know, the, the key to this as well, too, that's ringing in my mind is the fact that it would be extremely naive to not think that, okay, yes, I'm bringing XYZ program or XYZ business to this country and liaising with such government. But if you have a population which happens to, to hold fast of, or, or are pockets of a population that holds fast to the benefit of, let's say, ISIS or, or let's say going back in time to, to you know, the, the division in, in, in Lebanon during the, the Lebanese Civil War, for example, between the Christians and the Druze and, the, and everybody else. You know, if, if you have, if you don't take that into consideration, what is the damage that it can bring if you're looking to provide uh, a, a social impact to a country post-conflict if you don't really take that into consideration? Well, for starters, a lot of post-conflict situations are not really post-conflict. That is, the actual fighting may have stopped, but the animosities, the imagined warfare, the sense of the enemy, the sense of, of uh, divine intervention in human activity, that may be just as strong, just as palpable as it was when people were actually fighting on the battlefield. Hmm. So there are kind of booby traps of, of you know, human imagined warfare that you want to avoid and you want to avoid stepping into. And you can't just assume that because the, the physical fighting has stopped on the battlefield uh, that all of the hostilities have, have come to an end. Um, I, I was amazed when I was talking with people in the refugee camps near Mosul, uh, the degree to which they knew that there were ISIS supporters within the refugee camps. Uh, and they had to kind of navigate themselves. They, I'm talking with the people who were in the camp, uh, the ones who are not ISIS supporters. They had to kind of navigate themselves around these uh, these communities, these people whom uh, they thought could you know, bring them harm, bring them danger. Uh, and so there are these internal divisions that continue that you have to be aware of. And it looks like even that terminology, post-conflict, because he've highlighted that, that, that terminology is, is erroneous because the conflict is still ensuing. Though blood may not be shedding, you know, as one may know in large numbers, there is still the internal conflict going on spiritually, it seems, but also, you know, emotionally within the country in that sense. So, I, I'm Yeah, and also, and also potentially uh, physically. I mean, the, uh, the potential for violence is there every day. In Iraq and Syria, there are sporadic, sporadic outbursts of, <clears throat> of terrorism by former ISIS fighters. Or ISIS fighters who are still fighting, even though they're not, you know, have a territory that they control. <clears throat> but there's some thirty thousand ISIS fighters spread out to the region, uh, and they're still ready to do battle.
And that's where it puts it much more problematic if you have that NGO or that humanitarian organization that thinks, right, the conflict's over. Let's go ahead and, and, and you know, put up, set up base in the capital and distribute our packets, take the pincers, you know, hark all the donations. Or that business is right. This is where we can bring fintech, for example, and really empower the people, blah, blah, blah. There's still that issue that, you know, the, 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 the guns aren't shooting. The conflict is still, still ongoing, which is why I still find it so funny when people think that ISIS is, has been quote-unquote terminated when then, you know, as of today, we've just received a confirmation that ISIS is saying that they, that, that they carried out the Sri Lanka attacks. So they, there's that key issue. So I'm trying to, let me right, say, but yeah, go ahead. But, it's, it, it's not, but let me say a word about the Sri Lanka attacks, because mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to keep in mind that, that even though we have identified ISIS now as behind the Sri Lanka uh, attacks, and, and, and clearly it's from a kind of a radical Islamic perspective, they are no friends of the Muslims in Sri Lanka. Mm. I mean, the Muslims in Sri Lanka are themselves a targeted group. They are you know, a peaceful community that have been victims of really savage, extreme uh, violence from extremist Buddhists. Mm. And you go, oh, Buddhists are extremists? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're extremist Buddhists, particularly in Sri Lanka and Myanmar, uh, where they're exciting uh, violence against a largely peaceful Muslim community. And so ISIS, by coming in like this with their kind of international agenda of targeting Christianity, really has done a major disservice to the Muslims in Sri Lanka because now this is going to fuel the animosity, to fuel the Islamophobia of Buddhist extremists that have been attacking Muslims already. And this is one of the reasons why the Sri Lankan government very wisely shut down the social media. They shut down Facebook, Twitter, um, WhatsApp, because they didn't want a burst of kind of organizing, which these social medias allowed, conspiracy theories of, uh, you know, kind of get your Muslims because they look what they're doing to us. <laughs> and they didn't want kind of flash mobs to emerge on the basis of social media once the word got out that this was a must-have-related group. Now, there's still that potential, of course, but it's now been a couple of days after the attack, so maybe the passions have flared uh, down a little bit. Uh, but the point is that uh, just because an extremist act is related to one religious community uh, doesn't mean this is supported by the whole of that religious community. And in the case of Sri Lanka, it, it's just absolutely antithetical to the interest of the local community. They are, in some ways, the ISIS is the local Muslims in Sri Lanka's worst enemy. No, absolutely. And of course, that could be the same with said, for example, with Muslims, with Muslims in the Levant as well, too, who have nothing to do with, I, I mean, I, ISIS in general is, is an, as I like to say, is an anomaly uh, of, of mm-hmm. the actual core of the faith. Just as I says, you, you know, even with Christianity, those radical any radicalism from a particular religion is a complete anomaly from the actual core of 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 much of the faith but taking a step taking taking a step back and just looking at it towards the lens where it comes to you know, the marginalized within a country mm-hmm. let's say it's post conflict or you know uh, our, our new definition of post conflict where the gun stops shooting but the conflict is still going internally and whatnot you know, there, of course, is a marginalized community and you have XYZ company looking to bring in a business that could help bring in employment or economic empowerment, God knows what, or an NGO that's looking to bring in a program, whether it's health. How dangerous is it is 
if the organization does not do its due diligence in making in understanding who the marginalized populations are and how they will receive the the aid uh, or the, uh, the 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 business that's looking to to promote social impact. I'm thinking particularly uh, with, let's say, Lebanon, for example, where you have a, a so-called majority Christian, and then you have a, 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 the, the, the division between the, the Muslims, between, of course, the Shia and the Sunni, where you have a business that's coming in, but yeah, it'll trickle down to the Christians, but maybe not necessarily to the Shia, or maybe not necessarily to the to, to the other sects that are located up more north. And, and that seems to be overlooked. I mean, from my end, I see it as dangerous. But from your end, I mean, how I mean, how how toxic, how really uh, damaging can it be to not do that due diligence? Yeah, it can be a huge problem. Uh, you have to know the landscape. You have to know the cultural and religious and social landscape uh, in addition to the geographic and economic and and political one uh, and i'll give you some for instance uh in iraq for example if you go in uh to try to give support or aid and you work entirely with the local government organization and the local government organization is shia then you're going to be identified in some way with that shia government uh it, it may be almost impossible to avoid but you you can certainly in some way make clear that you're an international organization you're not you're not an arm of the shia community which has become uh kind of the enemy and and the kind of the oppressive community within iraq for the sunnis and so you have to be very delicate in the way in which you identify with the various local authorities and to make sure that you are not unwittingly appearing to side with one community over over against another. And there we go. And that can also put then the the one looking to bring the aid or even bring uh, the business in even more of a of a difficult pickle than before. Sure. So- and the Lebanon Lebanon is another example where you know the 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 country is so divided along sectarian religious ethnic uh, lines that if you appear to be working with or colluding with siding with one community and then come over to try to help out another community you're already tainted with that association you have to be very careful to make clear that you are not working on their behalf or are are an agent of them and better if if from the outset you're seen as an international organization a non uh, a non uh, locally connected organization which can yeah, which can which can even be more entangled in that sense. I mean, we've talked about what's going on in the world and, and how one is getting it wrong. Um, but but how can one do it right? I'm t- let's say for example to uh, when it comes to whether it's the conflict in let's say Central African Republic, which we knew was in two between the Muslims and the Christians, the Seleka and Anti Balaka. My memory serves me right. Uh, you know, what if you're looking to bring aid in that sec- section? Or let's say if we go back in time and, you know, we have our wise caps on and it's, it's post-conflict, early years, Iraqi war. Um, what, how, can, how should we operate then in order to make sure that, that we do our due diligence in understanding the religious dynamics that is present, but also make sure that marginalized communities get their fair share of, of the aid or, or, the, or the social impact that the business is looking to bring when the control is mainly via a, a power that is, that is suppressing more or less. Yeah, I think it's really uh, important to try to work with leadership within the community that's being aided 
uh, and not just with the authorities who may be outside that community or even be seen as as the social enemy of that community. Um, and, I, and I'll give you, uh, for instance, there are aid groups that work with the refugee camps in Iraq that I've recently visited uh, who, before setting up some sort of, uh, whether it's a clinic or, or some sort of resource for the people or even playgrounds for the kids, uh, in, in addition to working with the managers of the camp, who are often provided by the Kurdistan government, uh, who are Sunnis and Kurds, and most of the people there are, Shia, are Sunni Arabs, uh, they will meet with a council because there are uh, camp councils within the refugee camps uh, of Sunni Arabs who are in you know residents of the camps, and they will try to work with them to to decide what is the, the best kind of way to set up these. Uh, uh, these resources and what is the best way to make sure that they they serve everybody and they don't just serve an elite or a small number uh, to make sure that they're open. Uh, so before they even do anything, <laughs> they try to do, you know, the the footwork, the internal discussion among the people who are affected uh, to make sure that they are going to set up something that's effective and and, and serves everyone equally within the camp. Precisely in that sense. And it's a working with the leaderships and really just understanding that dynamics. And but but, but but of course, sometimes when you're working with the leaderships, it can be that, you know, I mean, there's so much diplomacy that one can do. And then there's so much political analysis that one can do. But but how can one really forge the will or get the, the, the message across? Let's say let's say it is a leadership that really doesn't have a particular interest towards the marginalized group. And, and it goes back to your what you mentioned originally, how religion is so crucial to identity, you know, and it, 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 that sense mm-hmm. of belonging and so much how states can use that to their advantage say oh these muslims have nothing to do oh, well there this is a great example with myanmar oh these muslims have nothing to do with uh with with myanmar they're 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 not you know from here they're foreigners get them out we're buddhist blah 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 or even even here in europe for example where many are saying oh these muslims or these anyone else they have nothing to do with us we're a christian country xyz they don't partake mm-hmm. to us how can one really get if if you are the playing the role of the diplomat whether for your business or whether for your NGO, how do you really get that to that understanding is that you need to have this spread out in order for it to work, this development to work, or else you will resume to the conflict? I mean, is that easy to put it that way, or is this just wishful thinking to think, think that one can just talk with them? No, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right that you have to work closely with a variety of groups that are affected. And sometimes this means that you have to work with the host community to remind say, Christians in Europe who are hostile to Syrian refugees flooding into the country, that there's a tradition of hospitality within Christianity, that every religious tradition has this notion of welcoming strangers, particularly people who are persecuted, uh, in part because you may be persecuted someday. You may be a stranger. You may need the same kind of support and and welcoming strength that is provided. So sometimes the... um, an effort to uh, not just help those who are persecuted, but to but to uh, try to work with the communities that potentially could welcome them or be hostile to them uh, to open up their their doors and share in the relief efforts, and that makes, of course, the work much more easy. And, and <clears throat> true, it makes the work more easy, and this is 
bringing me to my final question that I want to ask, which, um, you know, of course, at, at Pax Tech and Global, the consultancy that, 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 that focuses and supports this podcast, we, we have this belief in the power of diplomacy and international development, that there doesn't have to be diplomats within uh, just the, with, from a state, but there could be non-state actor diplomats as well, whether from businesses, NGOs, etc. And of course, it tends to be a more political spin, but uh, this whole conversation has got me wondering, is there a need for religious diplomats in this sense? Do we need to have a religious diplomat? Let's say, what, not necessarily the Pope, uh, but uh, a, a proper diplomat uh, that can gain the trust of both, let's say, the, the country, the post-conflict country, and let's say the non-state actor, whether it's the NGO or the business, who has that authority within that religious context that can be able to gain respect. Is there a need for religious diplomats? No, I, I think the idea of religious diplomacy is a great idea, and, and let me give you an example. Uh, in the case of, of Iraq right now, where you have hundreds of thousands of Sunni Arabs who've been displaced in, from Mosul and other former ISIS-controlled territories, and the problem is integrating them into society and finding a new life for them and and getting you know government support, not just NGO support, for their welfare and their rehabilitation. And to do that, requires a change of attitude among the Shia who control the Iraqi government. And the re- the clergy, the religious leaders within the Shia community can make a huge difference uh, if they be- suddenly begin talking about the responsibility of Islam to be o- welcome to, uh, uh, to, to strangers, to be hospitable, uh, to serve uh, all Muslims, regardless of whether they're Sunni or Shia alike, to discount whatever connection they may have had with ISIS before because even though most of the people in the camps are not ideologically supportive of ISIS, they kind of went along with ISIS because, you know, they gave Sunnis a certain amount of empowerment and gave them jobs. And uh, and now, however, they should not be treated as, as the enemy. They should be treated as people who were have always been victims within an ISIS-controlled territory, and they need – they need support. That's not been the attitude of the Shia community in Iraq in general, and that's been a huge problem. So religious diplomacy, a kind of uh, um, change of attitude among the Shia leaders and their attempt to try to uh, to to preach to their uh, Iraqi community, to the government, to the leadership, to the to the citizens in general about their responsibility to help these people would make a huge difference, would help turn around the Iraq government's attitude, would make it possible for for funds and support and for just mobility within the country. A number of Sunnis told me they can't even go to Baghdad because the Shia there will treat them like dirt. They will treat them like like uh, ISIS supporters just because they're, they're Sunni. Well, that attitude has to change. And that's a change that could be affected by religious religious leadership and religious diplomacy and 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 not just by you know hoping that goodwill will take its course over time precisely and you really hit the nail when you mentioned the fact that so many people just assume that if they're joining isis 
they, they're just going to join because they, they, oh, because they believe in the art. I mean, that, that exists. There are those that very much believe in the ideology. But there's the other aspect, which is why people join Al-Qaeda, why people join ISIS, and join any Al-Shabaab in Somalia, is because of the fact they were hungry, and there were no jobs, and there was no opportunity. Mm-hmm. And they all of a sudden came up with promises of not only jobs and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and food, but also women and glory and God. So, well, of course, you'd be crazy not to think so. I mean, well, you know, depending on your context. But I've and, talked with dozens of people like that. I've talked with dozens of people in refugee camp and said, yeah, I went along with ISIS. And I even I worked for a while as a fighter because they paid well. And I, you know, I said, what all, about all those beliefs in the apocalyptic images? Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. I says, uh, you know, we, we kind of went along with that. But it was mostly, you know, we, we, we wanted a job. That's it. And so, and that goes, so what do you do? I mean, you had people who, who don't have work and they are out of job and they're looking for employment. And they're looking for a little dignity in life. Uh, and somebody comes along and says, hey, you're, you know, your point uh, important to come join our movement. And by the way, we'll give you uh, employment. What's not to like? That's it. That's it. And we we cover this really beautifully on episode 16 of the Global Podcast. We spoke of Sami Hamdi of, of the International Interest and who spoke specifically that about Syria and in, and in Yemen that it was, and, and from his own native uh, Tunisia as well. People joined these groups because they were hungry. They had, they had nothing to do. And this is also a reason going back so much more to the need to understand, you know, the religious dynamics of the country where people just think, oh, the ISIS are all fanatics. Well, hold up a second you know you, you mm-hmm. it really highlights it well and, and the need for us just to understand what what are what are the religious dynamics on the ground in order to operate and really make social impact work because we're just working too much in a in too much of a in a particular framework but and one of the ways you understand is go and talk with people and not just assume that you already know what they believe or assume that you know how they think. If you just spend a little time talking with people in refugee camps or talking with people in the affected era, then you get a whole much more nuanced sense of the role that religious religion played, the role that religious organizations played, which the role in which uh, terrorist groups have, may have played. And the different degrees of association and relationship and and how that can change in the future. You learn all that by talking with people. And that's the role of the good diplomat at the end of the day. It is to talk and to listen in order to be able to understand and execute. And I think that wraps this up very beautifully. Well, uh, Professor Jurgers, it has been a pleasure. It has been, as I always say in the other podcasts, but I always mean it, it has been true food for thought, a lot to think about. And I hope it really stirs up the, the understanding of the need to understand religious dynamics within within conflict zones and post-conflict zones in order to really make the difference that we're trying to do. Professor Jürgens Meyer, thank you very much for joining the Global Podcast. My pleasure. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechandglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M g-l-o-b-a-l dot org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of PAX on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!